0: Hey, it's Kevin. Thanks to those of you who've supported this podcast, we're able to continue our weekly production schedule, even though Serial is going bi-weekly. Now, our conversations about Serial, making a murderer, and everything else are made possible with your help. If you enjoy the show and you want to put a tip in the jar, you can go to crimewriterson.com and make a donation with Square or PayPal. Now, if you want to support us another way, You can use the Amazon link we've posted there. Just click and shop, bookmark that link, and a tiny portion of your purchase at Amazon.com goes to support this show. Now, we've gotten some questions about the stuff you buy. Yes, we can see the items that were purchased, but no, not who bought them. So don't worry, person who bought that book called Diary of Edward the Hamster, we have no idea who you are. In fact, we don't actually really want to know. Again, that link... To Amazon.com is at our website, CrimeridersOn.com. Use it to buy all the stuff that you would have bought anyway. And who knows, maybe your purchase could make Toby's list. You know the one. Rebecca, roll the tape.
1: Seven for all mankind women's The Relaxed Skinny Girlfriend jean in vintage fog gray, 28. Depends Silhouette for Women Incontinence Briefs Maximum Absorbency Small-Medium 12 Count Pack of Four Magic the Gathering MTG Oath of the Gatewatch OWG Pre-Release Pack Pre-Release Promo Plus Six Boosters Plus... D20 spin-down counter. Invisible dog boots. Protect paws from sand, hot pavement, ice, and salt with natural 100% wax-based cream for dogs who just won't wear boots.
2: I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime and occasionally other podcasts. Today we will be talking about Serial Season 2 episode 5, Meanwhile in Tampa is the name of that episode. Joining me to do just that is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and six-time loser of our ongoing billiards tournament, oh. Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin.
0: Hello, Rebecca. I got to get out to the driveway and start shoveling.
2: And also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private eye, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. Also joining us is noir novelist and everyone's favorite naysayer, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, so, episode five, Meanwhile in Tampa, big, big episode, but let's start at the beginning. The very first part of the episode, we heard Kim Harrison, this friend of Bo Bergdahl's, about her quest to help in the search for Bo. Bo. Laura, did you think as I did that the whole episode was going to be about Kim Harrison's efforts when you first heard her voice chiming in? Yeah, I did. It seemed like, you know,
3: we started right off the bat with Kim Harrison and she's somebody when I had gone online, I had read about her and her family connection with Bo. And so I was thinking, oh, we're finally going to hear from some of the people who know him. But I was I was blown away. This week.
2: It was pretty mind blowing this entire episode. and It was a great way to start it. Kevin, how did you feel about the way this episode started with Kim Harrison's initial story about going to the before I even played it?
0: The title of the episode. Right. Meanwhile, in Tampa, it instantly uh, indicated to me a whole change in tone from where we've been because it has been very somber and it needs to be because it's talking about a guy in captivity but immediately the writing uh, everything the the attitude was different when she starts talking about how Kim kept going she goes women I mean that was the best part of the podcast for me
2: and Tampa in and of itself is just sort of like a silly place if you've ever seen Magic Mike you know that Tampa is just sort of a place that is as far removed from, you know, the countryside in Pakistan as you can possibly imagine it to be, correct?
0: Yeah. But it also makes a point. It's like, OK, he's somewhere in the uh, hitherlands of Pakistan and the people who give a crap about him are in Tampa in a little office because that's just the way it, it is.
2: And in Portland, And we heard that Kim Harrison had to go to her local police station to report Bo Bergdahl missing in an effort to get this Interpol contact of hers had told her that, you know, Interpol could get involved, but only if she reported him missing locally. Toby, when you heard about Kim Harrison going to the Portland Police Department and, you know, reporting Bo Bergdahl missing, did you think this whole episode was going to be about sort of a small personal story? Did you imagine it would get as big as it ended up getting?
1: You know, I actually I didn't have a clue, but I thought it was interesting the way it started, and it was, you know, something I thought about before, not necessarily in terms of other episodes, but if it's your son or one of your very close friends, you know, what are you doing while they're missing? And, and so. I guess I kind of thought that that was, the, that was the direction it was going.
2: Could you relate, Toby, to this idea that, you know, there must be something I can do as, you know, Kim Harrison felt like I'm just going to do what I can possibly do. I mean, is that something that you felt like is what you would do in that situation?
1: Yeah, well, I I think, you know, in this day and age, there's just so much information that's right at your fingertips. And if that was really... What you were spending your time doing, I, I I think there's quite a bit you could probably do over the course of, of weeks or months. And you know, his father, some people gave him a hard time for you know growing the beard and learning Pashto and and these different things. And and I was always just thought, well, of course he he would do that. You know, I, I would do that if it was if it was my kid who was being held captive by the Taliban, I'd be learning everything I possibly could, trying to figure out how to talk to them, you know, trying to find ways to communicate with them outside Especially when no one else is, Toby, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that they would do it and You know, I I just assumed that somebody was doing something.
2: I did feel like Kim, you know, her story was sort of interspersed throughout the first part of the episode and between some other stories. I felt like her story was our first hint. I think that Sarah, uh, Sarah Koenig is a very skilled storyteller and that she drops like sort of little anvil hints along the way. And that her story was her first hint about how the government treats these, you know, families and friends of American hostages was ended up being like a big theme of this episode. You know, the another nagging woman, Kevin, as you mentioned the you know, whole women, you know, throwaway remark. But the other thing that got really interesting about her story was how far she got in actually investigating and getting close to a solution. And there were some details that we weren't, privy to where she said... How about
0: Kim's story, right? Kim okay. Harrison's
2: story. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I don't want to tell you who canceled my passport, but the, the, <laughs> then the... I don't want to tell you about the thing that I did that got my number in the hands of the Taliban. Laura, what did you think about that narrative, that Kim's number got in the hands of the Taliban, next thing you know, the FBI has, you know, using her computer to email with the Taliban, and she is signing releases for the NSA to do surveillance on her. Tell me what you thought about that part of the episode and about her story. This was um, one of the parts that
3: really struck me, that the most credible lead they had came from a civilian who just happened to contact the Taliban somehow. It it really sort of made me wonder, and we found out later in the episode, what other people were doing if this was really their best chance at at getting Bo home early on and it doesn't sound like it worked out. And this is the second time in the season that we've had somebody just contact the Taliban. I I, I think Sarah's
0: proved that it's actually not that difficult to call the Taliban if you really want to. (laughs)
3: Um, but I, And I loved how she interspersed a little bit of humor there when she talked about, you know, the shirt, the university happy, happy, celebrate victory now shirt, just to kind of break up the severity, you know, the seriousness of the situation. But I was just sort of blown away by the fact that this woman was doing what I expected the government would have been doing.
0: You mean translating messages using Google Translate? <laughs>
3: Yeah, just, I mean, you know, that she was going to these lanes. I guess that she felt that she had to go to these lanes. That's that's what really struck me, was that she didn't have confidence
2: in what was being done. I was really impressed with her ingenuity in terms of dealing with Interpol and, you know, her getting them everything they needed and using the Halloween mask to get Bo Bergdahl's DNA to Interpol. I thought that was an incredibly interesting detail. And Does very- the Manor
0: County Sheriff know about uh, that you can use <laughs> a Cheshire Cat mask to get DNA around.
2: Okay, okay, um, but I also think that um, Bo
0: probably had a pair of underwear.
2: <laughs> you know, one of the things that occurred to me was when we heard about. Interpol, which is an agency that we don't hear a whole lot about, I think, just as people like living here. I think Interpol mostly comes up like in Jason Bourne movies. Typically, like they're the police that can like track people's passports and so forth. And that they, you know, could have gotten involved, you know, legally, I guess, technically could have gotten involved, but that someone in the DOD, I think it was, just said no. I mean, uh, Toby, is hearing that the United States government and the DOD, knowing all these agencies are involved and that they're is a police force that could legitimately just walk around in Pakistan and help solve the case? Did you have any like Im- impressions or reactions to the idea that you know the, the the Department of Defense would just say, "Nope, we're we're good, thanks." <laughs> Was that surprising to
1: you? I, I guess it's not that surprising, and I think they go into it a little bit more as the uh, episode goes along. But I, I, there's just so many factors that are going on with our relations with Pakistan and the way Pakistan's attitude towards the Taliban, it just seems like there's so many important factors and the idea that there would be some group acting independently of, you know, our interests as, as the United States, I think they would find threatening and potentially has the potential to, to mess some stuff up. So I, I guess it doesn't surprise me too much, you would hope that in addition to telling them we don't want your help that they would be spending all their resources that they that they could to finding him, which also wasn't the case. But, you know, I think in general they want as few people messing around with that kind of touchy situation as possible.
2: I did think that the Kim Harrison story, starting the episode with this story in particular, because the episode really was very expansive, much more so, I think, than any other episode this season in terms of what it covered and in terms of the number of people we talked to and their points of view... But her story was, in a way, very relatable and, like, a little bit light, even though the subject matter wasn't light. And, and Kevin, she was
0: self-aware, too. Yeah, she was she self she realized how crazy the situation was.
2: She was crazy. She was self-aware. It brought to mind things like, you know, when she signed a release for the NSA, I thought to myself, like... I don't think the NSA needs a release to survey you. Apparently, <laughs> you know, maybe that's why you they faded away because they were still just surveying you. do I have to sign something?
0: Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but just Kevin, uh, sign that's fine.
2: I know that you've been really interested in, you know, sort of the tonal presentation of serial thus far. And we've had four a very, very heavy episodes. Mm-hmm. And the last episode we heard two weeks ago was about four years of horror for Bo Bergdahl. How do you feel about this tonal shift in the storytelling and that this episode was kicked off with this somewhat lighter point of view when it comes to this to this case?
0: I think that uh, Sarah does like, you know, just looking at the body of her work, she does like to be a, a conversational storyteller, to be lighter. Absolutely. There were a couple of times during, you know, describing Bo's captivity that she could put some levity. And I'm thinking of the line like about, you know, the Taliban sunglasses are cool. But, you know, it, it's you can't start like cracking jokes in the middle of, of Bergdahl talking about how he was getting beat with a rubber hose. So I think she found a spot where she could sort of come back and start telling the story. And I think she's heard this, too. I mean, I'm just guessing there's been a lot of belly aching about serial season two and it's not just that it's not the Adnan story it's not a crime mystery it's not just I hate Bo Bergdahl and he deserves what he got it it is also sort of about that the show hasn't uh, struck the same chords and I think this is a way of her it isn't like Dylan going electric but it is like her kind of getting back to like this is how I want to tell the story. Couldn't quite do that in those episodes, but this is what, how how it's going to be.
2: I wonder, too, and Toby and Laura, I'd love to hear from you on this. I wonder how this week's episode relates to the announcement we heard last week that suddenly we have new people to talk to and we're sort of rejiggering the reporting. As a radio producer, I did hear some new tracking in this episode, which means I heard what sounded like even like mid-sentence sometimes or mid-paragraph I could tell that Sarah had recorded, you know, the second sentence at a different time than she'd recorded the first sentence. So what came to mind for me was this wasn't supposed to be here now, and it's been repackaged and sort of reordered to accommodate this new voice, this new person that we have here in mind. And you guys both had hopes last week of what this rejiggering of the schedule and what these new voices would mean. And Laura, this is a broad question, but did this episode take you there? Did it sort of fulfill some of your aspirations for what it could mean that now this was going bi-weekly? Did you feel like the promise was fulfilled? I did. Um, I have to say this was the first episode since like season one
3: where the episode ended and I really felt outraged by some of the things that she talked about, and and so much so that I was still thinking about them afterwards like I used to do in season one. So I think it absolutely is going somewhere. I think that this issue of how the US is handling hostages over there is going to be really part of the bigger picture, and Beau is, is one piece of that. But I, I went and looked up this afternoon, um, because now I'm thinking this is where she's going, that there was um back in December a report of another US hostage and they won't say who it is an unnamed man civilian also being held by the Haqqani. So I'm wondering if kind of that's where we're going and this is really going to be a much larger issue than just Bo Bergdahl.
2: Toby did did you feel that some of the hopes that you had last week when we were you know told that cereal wasn't coming back and it was going to be bi-weekly and you know you sort of said, you know, I I trust Sarah that She's bringing us somewhere, but I kind of need some hints as to where we're going. Do you feel better now after hearing this week's episode?
1: Well, I think it's moving in the right direction. You know, this is the first time that I felt like there was an opportunity for more immediate reporting. Yeah, so I, you know, for me, it doesn't feel like the culmination of my hopes and dreams for the podcast, but it, it does feel like it's a step in the right direction.
2: So let's talk now about the next couple of people we're introduced to in the podcast. When she first introduced them, Andrea and Michelle, and said these aren't with their real names, of course I immediately thought of Kathy, not Kathy, <laughs> from, from Serial Season 1. One thing I want to clear up really quick is there has been some chatter on Twitter today about Andrea and Michelle and, of course, the other character we were introduced to later, Nathan, all using not their real names in the podcast. And how anonymous could they be, given that you know we hear their voices and we know what their jobs were and, and their jobs are. Kevin, can you just clarify for me the difference between anonymity versus plausible deniability when it comes to being the source for a reported story. Like, it's not so much about them not wanting anyone to know who they are, but more so about just not using their real names well, for the story, right?
0: Yeah, and, and there are different reasons for that. I mean, Sarah definitely has said there are people that uh, she talked to that were just on background, so that meant that, like, they weren't going to be recorded. And there were people that she talked to, like the like the dolls that were on the record but not recorded. You know, I think there was—because— Okay so you have uh two people and a two person office and they're it's like you know I mean how hard well, no, is there it No there're
2: two people working in on the Afghanistan uh, yeah, part I mean, of that I mean we don't know how big him Yeah are right in the I mean it's
0: it's it, like so you don't have to be you know Inspector Clouseau could figure out you know <laughs> who these people really are you know like you looking at for their underlings here but it isn't I mean some people I think felt like oh no did Sarah betray them because it's so obvious to find out who It is. It isn't like they made a phone call and said, oh, I didn't realize I was being recorded and you could have used it. You could tell they were sitting in front of a microphone. Right. Um, So I think they understood and and I think they chose the level of how – they chose to participate and I think they chose this is how do you want to be identified and just change – I mean, I think they had to be comfortable as their decision to do that. I didn't have any problem with the way any of that was presented. I I think if it really was somebody who was like deep undercover – You you know they would alter the voice, and then they do that with Kathy in season one. Kathy, not
2: Kathy's voice was altered; she was a little bit banksied, as uh, as as you kept reminding me is not actually a verb, but I think of it as one.
1: They they all seem very savvy, you know, just just the way they were they were sort of dealing with the system in which they were. So it it would really surprise me if they were taken aback or surprised by the way that they were sort of shown in the in the podcast.
2: One of the things that struck me, and Laura, I'd love to hear your take on this because, you know, Sarah makes a point in her writing for herself to talk about what she imagines in her head versus the reality. And she talks about with the PR team, not public relations, personnel recovery. And then she says, I imagine them working in this, like, slick office, but really it's just cubicles and phones, and it's in Tampa. Do those details matter to you as much as they matter to me when you hear these stories laid out this way? Oh, absolutely. I,
3: mean, I have a very visual mind, so I'm always sort of making up things in my head when I'm listening to that. And, and that really set the scene of where these girls were and just sort of helped me visualize what was happening. I just want to say one thing about the, the use of their names. I really felt like it was more that they were afraid people were going to target them because they had tried to bring Bo Bergdahl home.
0: Yeah, not 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 like uh, people yeah. in the government. I think that's yeah, what they like said the about— Andrea and, and Michelle, yeah, they don't want their neighbors to know this is what they had been doing yeah. because, of, yeah, the backlash.
2: Not yeah. just their neighbors, but people who could like look them up on Facebook and <clears throat> right. then like, yeah. you know, or like
0: happened to Jay,
2: right? Yeah, that's what. Yeah. I Yeah, and
0: Nathan, or I can't remember if that's a fake name or that's, that's real fake name. I mean, yeah. He said again, she ex- was transparent. He hasn't done anything illegal, but it would be considered unprofessional.
2: We will get pra- there because okay. that was a fascinating part of the episode. But I don't want to downplay how fascinating Andrea and Michelle were because. They were in Tampa, we sort of get the first it feels like breaking the fourth wall when they talk about how their job is to bring people home and that the biggest thing that they are confronted with when it comes to talking about the people that they want to bring home is that bias against why it is that you know, they call it the circumstances of capture. That that bias against And and Sarah does a good job sort of unpacking this for herself, like the why were you hiking in Afghanistan bias? You know, that guy walked off the base bias. Uh, We hear Jason Amory say people who are really ignorant about the case just called Bo Bergdahl a traitor. And even if they knew a lot about the case, they would say, I heard he was a traitor. And how that would come up in meetings, but how for them, their first mission is to bring the people home and I kind of feel like that was a nod to the audience. I in think a she way. was
0: talking to the audience in a way about that. Because I mean certainly the ones and we've seen this on Facebook and Twitter and the, and, and our, our our listeners are cool and some of them say they don't like Bo and they don't like this. And and I think she she's saying that this was the mistake that we've made for 5 years is that we didn't give this priority because we were concerned about the circumstances of capture. We let the reason why it happened cloud our judgment and our our feelings about getting the job done and basically saying because we didn't like what Bo Bergdahl did in 2009, we shouldn't do anything or feel anything for him afterwards i feel like it's like the uh, if there was a guy who was driving drunk and he hit a telephone pole it's like saying well why should we send an ambulance to you because you were breaking the law you know it's kind of like uh, like that like uh, well you you, know, you set the house on fire so why should we rescue you and put the fire out i mean you don't that's not the way you operate you do the job because it's the right thing to do it's an emergency and then you worry about the circumstances Afterwards, and that is a problem for Andrea and Michelle because that was something they ran up against. But it's also Sarah's problem with part of her audience: the people don't care for the the subject.
2: I think that Andrea and Michelle also gave us an opportunity to look at other prisoners, other hostages. We didn't and, even know
0: we're out we're out there.
2: And Laura, you mentioned this, and you know, she described the couple that had been taken and the woman who had been who had given birth in captivity. What, yeah. did you th- what did you think when you heard that story?
3: I thought, oh, my God. I mean, I, you know, giving birth out of captivity is quite something. <laughs> and here's the, I, I just was horrified. And I went and looked this up. This is Caitlin Coleman and her husband, uh, Joshua Boyle. And they were captured in 2012. And they're being held by the Haqqani, just like Bo. And they are still there. Which wow. is amazing to me. So yeah, and what I was back to, you know, we were talking about kind of how people were being judged, being rescued. I, I found some irony as I was listening to this because I'm thinking about, you know, people in the military are really trying to uphold sort of the principles that we value in this country. You know, like that everybody gets a fair trial. And Bo, we don't know the whole story of what happened when Bo walked off, and they were already, you know, judge, jury, and executioner.
2: So they, they had already made up their mind without giving him that opportunity. It really was something. And then, Toby, I want to go to you because the other part of the story that we heard Andrea and Michelle, not their real names, tell was about going to Afghanistan and just trying to get FaceTime with the people who, you know, the generals on the ground, the people who could do something potentially. and. We heard the story about, you know, he really likes Johnny Walker Black. So you could put that on his desk. Didn't that seem like a scene from Homeland or some like fictional telling of this story, like exactly how it would go?
1: Yeah, it's bizarre. And it's bizarre that it's so like small time, you know, it's like a a general. You're going to be able to bribe him with some beef jerky and whiskey.
2: The beef jerky. Uh, That's right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I, I didn't. It was one of those. I just didn't even know what to what to make of that. It, it just seemed kind of strange. It's like if you're gonna if you're gonna need to bribe a guy at that level, it seemed like such a ridiculous petty bribe. Not that they he even should be bribed. I mean that that that's got to be part of there. As uh, one of the guys says later that that this whole thing about not leaving anybody behind gets ingrained in you as a member of the military. And that doesn't seem to have, you know, worked its way up the chain of command to that level if you have to bribe a guy to even talk about it.
0: I don't know bribing so much is like greasing the wheels and it's sort of the politics, you know, in a, in a lot of places, in civilian offices and, and what – again, I just thought it spoke to the, uh, the lengths that they had to go to get people to take this seriously, you know. And it wasn't until the Bergdahls themselves got involved – that people would take their calls. And I thought that was interesting that nobody realized that. Uh, Laura
2: and Toby, did either one of you see uh, Zero Dark Thirty? No. Okay, so Toby's a yes, Laura's a no. No. So, you know, Zero Dark Thirty, obviously, at this point, we now know is, like, largely the result of some propaganda that was fed to the filmmakers in order to sort of tell the story of how torture worked.
0: Who happened Um, to be Mark Ball. Mark
2: Ball, yes. Uh, But we we also, Kevin and I also watched a really interesting documentary about the hunt for Osama bin Laden on HBO, I think it was. I think it was called Manhunt. Mm -hmm. And it told the story of the large number of women analysts and women in offices, like the one we heard described, doing a lot of the heavy lifting that then turns into tactics and then turns into sort of the the game that ends up getting played on the ground. And this is actually, I don't think it's an uncommon thing, but the thing that really did strike me was that she started with this woman, Kim Harrison, who was like, oh, you know, another nagging girl. And then we had these two other women who were wearing T-shirts with, you know, people MIA on them, with Bo Bergdahl on them, mm-hmm. and that, you know, somebody in there, a colonel, wouldn't even know who Bo Bergdahl was, and there just seemed to be this recurring theme of like, and I'm, Sisters I'm sorry. Sisters doing it for
0: themselves? I'm
2: sorry, Toby and Kevin, but like, the brains are in these cubicles, you know, and they're, they're just trying to sort of get the word out that this is what we're supposed to be doing. Did you feel that way at all when you heard what these women were trying to do and uh, that they weren't able to get anywhere?
0: I didn't look at it in terms of gender at all. Although, when I mean, you point at it, it's like, well, the women were the determined characters in this story, they were the ones that kept the ball rolling anyway. I just thought, you know, this, this is they take what they do very seriously, even if they're in Tampa and they're trying to, you know, look at geo uh, int and what was it human. Oh, my God. All uh, those
2: all those uh, military terms. Yeah. You like, know,
0: they're trying to f- find out how to so do this com, from the other com. side of the world. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, all right. So let's move over now to the intelligence officer that we heard from Nathan. No longer an intelligence officer, but again, not using his real name. He decided, he took it upon himself to work with the dolls in a way, kind of, you know, have a second job, really, of sort of feeding them the things that he knew might help them. I thought Nathan was a fascinating character. Toby, what did you think of this part of the podcast? We heard about Nathan calling the Bergdahls, saying, you should— Maybe ask this question. You know, you should throw your weight around. You're the parents of a POW. You could probably meet with this person. You should ask why it is they haven't done X or why. What did you think of this part of the podcast, and what did you think of Nathan as a character?
1: You know, when I was listening to this, like more than any other time that I've listened to any of the stuff in serial, I was thinking this this is the makings of a really good novel because I think it's it's got some interesting – Sort of relationships between Nathan and the Berg dolls, and there's like intrigue and you know social commentary and all this stuff. The one thing I found frustrating about this episode is that the things that I think would have been really, really interesting, they can't tell you. So it's like, why was Nathan like particularly disturbed by this? That's and right, they said, they said there's a reason, but they can't tell you. So I, I found that a little frustrating, but I, you know, I, I think it's. It, it's it's really interesting yeah it just it, it reminded me a little bit of like a, a good book or, or or something that would have been like a good like 70s kind of paranoia movie okay
0: Mr fiction author give give yeah. Nathan some
1: motivation Nathan some motivation yeah what was
0: it, what would be his his motivation in the in the fictional version?
1: Yeah, you know his father I, I was know. kidnapped
0: was to... in uh, the Korean War or something like that.
1: Yeah, I couldn't tell like if that maybe had a personal connection at some point, or he knew somebody went through a similar situation, or he's witnessed that kind of sort of apathy about something in the past that that got, I, I just I, I don't know, but it seems like the possibilities are, are both there, many and there. They're interesting. He was
0: trying to prove himself to his high school girlfriend who dumped him. I actually have
2: another theory, and I think Laura will be on board with this because, like me, she loves a good conspiracy. Um, I think that Nathan saw some people working counter to the rescue of Boberg Dahl, and he didn't Mm, like it.
0: That well, you know. Do you
2: remember earlier in the podcast we heard the story about somebody— Telling the guys in Pakistan, you know, we're not going to come after him. He's just one guy. We don't care about him, you know, allegedly an American, you know, sort of sending that message along. I kept thinking about that this entire episode. All these people working across purposes. And some of these people within the government who are willing to sort of step out and say, no, that's not cool. It's not right. Nathan, I think, is one of those people who was willing to step outside of his box, do something which, you know, was considered not illegal but definitely unprofessional in his line of work. And I wonder, and Laura, you can tell me if you agree with me, if he may have been privy. To some of that behavior that he saw as counter to bringing Bo home, like legitimately counter to it. Yeah, no, I think you I think you could
3: be onto something there because it it felt like he clearly was upset by the way things were going forward, even though he wasn't intimately involved. It sounded like he was in the area where this was happening and something happened that upset him. And, you know, what I was thinking as I was listening to this, and I'm listening to how, you know, really, this is when things really started happening in Bo's case, is when his parents got involved. And I'm thinking to myself, what would have happened if Nathan hadn't sort of nudged this along? How much longer would it have taken for anything to happen in this case? That's do you know what, what I mean?
2: I do know what you mean. And we heard about it when we heard about our next character. <laughs> Toby, I thought of you the entire time. Super soldier Jason Amory. <laughs> who apparently is that
3: because we're gonna have a Toby Ball action figure? Who apparently
2: the military like the actually made it they have actually made an action figure of this guy because he is so awesome.
1: Yeah, and he then, reminded me of myself as well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but then even to hear him talk, okay, let's just talk about him for a second. This is why I have really been interested in this season. And this is why I've thought the episodes that have been the strongest of Serial Season 2 have been when we have heard the voices of military guys directly. Because I could listen to them talk all day long. Jason Amory's use of language, his dropping curse words in exactly the right sentence and using exactly the right F-bomb or S-bomb to sort of like, and you, and you just, you, you can't object Because, you know, if he's saying it, he's got so much authority. He just sounds like somebody you would absolutely fall in line behind. Toby, I'd just love to hear your impressions of Jason Amory. Sarah sort of introduces him and she's like, makes no bones about it. Like, this guy is a super soldier. Not an
0: actual impression, but
1: just...
2: Yeah. (laughs) What did did you think of... I don't do
1: impressions. What did you think Um, of this
2: guy and the way Sarah brought him into the conversation?
1: If you're, again, you know, looking at it through sort of a fiction writer's eyes, he sort of has the... The, the moral center of like the military you know I think he's he's sort of what the military sort of aspires to think of itself as so that his outrage and being disturbed by what he sees and learns in this case you know I, I thought was very affecting and again it's it's one thing to hear a civilian or, or, or some some person who's a you know a government, Worker, functionary, whatever, uh, talk about. To, but to hear this this very decorated guy who obviously gets a, a ton of respect in the military give his his qualms about what's going on I, I, it was it was a powerful piece.
2: Kevin, we have heard from some people in the military, and we've heard you know from some JAG lawyers, especially who do have that just sort of innate outrage against Bergdahl. That Jason Amarine immediately is like, "Hey, I thought we didn't leave anybody behind." Mm-hmm. That was a huge contrast. That I mean, it,
0: and, and General it, Campbell as well was uh, right, but yeah. General
2: Campbell, of course, had talked to Bo Bergdahl's parents on the advice. Of Nathan, Nathan, which is like really interesting the way that she sort of, she traced that thread without pointing to it explicitly, which uh-huh. I thought was really, really good storytelling. You know, you had to draw that conclusion yourself. But what did you think when you heard Jason Amoreen talk about it being black and white in the opposite way? And he has so much credibility.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it took somebody like him to say it to the audience and to, I guess, to say it in real life because he does have the cred, can't call it street cred I guess you got it's battle cred you know as far as a character you know it's like it, it, you know the much more compelling military figures are like John Wayne and Robert Mitchum versus Tom Hanks Th- this guy sounds like John Wayne and so when he says you know we we need to do this it carries more weight and that's something we always you know we always thought they said we're not going to leave anybody behind
2: Right. But then we hear and Sarah, like, just at this a little bit, but I did do some research after listening today. And, you know, there's a lot of reporting that talks about him being banished from the Pentagon, you know, that he had to quietly mm-hmm. resign because he took up the Bergdahl case. He was critical of the administration and the military's handling of families and relatives of people who had been Being held hostage. And most of all, he was a very proactive whistleblower advocate. You know, he was, he thought with his credibility, he'd be able to get out there and do this work, and then found himself the subject of investigation and was like, no, that's also just not okay. Laura, when you hear this and you sort of think about what we talked about in the first episode of this podcast this season and how there might be some much larger story here in terms of. Bo knew something or people knew something about the Bo Bergdahl situation, and there was a much, much larger web. And then you hear somebody like Jason Emery, who stood up, said, we need to go get this guy, and then was the subject of investigation himself. Does it lend credence to the idea that there is something here that we are going to get to, or— am i am i nuts to even like pose that idea
3: no i think we're getting to something i think he's really going to end up being one of the heroes of the series in a way but if you like you said if you go out and read some of the things that he's talked about and when he he testified about his distress about the dysfunction in the hostage recovery system and that's when he came under fire and then he went and he talked with this uh, congressman Duncan Hunter who is the one who's now trying to push forward efforts to change this policy and he's also the one hunter who kinda let out the fact that there is another unnamed male civilian being held by the Haqqani right now it was sort of hinted in a press release that he sent out so I think that when you hear This coming up now with Jason, and I think this has a much bigger picture, he was uh, at one point, he was quoted saying that he had developed one plan when he was working on this, that would have seen the release of all of the hostages, plus two other Westerners in captivity in exchange for an Afghan drug dealer. And that was shot down. And what was interesting about that was that it was shot down because the State Department said they were only focused on freeing Bergdahl so I think there was gonna be some sort of bigger picture coming out
2: so we also heard Amarin talk about the confusion between who was in charge you know he did as you mentioned Laura you know we didn't hear all those details in the podcast but we did hear he had a plan and it got pretty far until he realized that SOCOM thought that CENTCOM had it CENTCOM thought the State Department had it the State Department thought that the DOD was running the operation of course there's nobody who could make any of those decisions. We also heard about, by the way, our frenemy Pakistan and sort of the complications there. And <laughs> I don't know if T- Toby and Laura, you, Laura, you're probably a no since you just got premium cable. I don't know if either one of you ever seen Homeland, but I kind of thought like, yeah, of course that's how it is. I've seen Homeland. That's just how it is on Homeland. Kevin, <laughs> you just actually about?
0: no. You know, I just had this flashback of us standing in our kitchen watching the story of Bo Bergdahl coming that's home. That's right. And making a joke saying. Oh man! Guy comes back from captivity after five years. It's Brody. He's, we just saw this. It's on Home. It's season one of Homeland. <laughs> it's like, is he going to run for Congress now and try to kill the Vice President with a? I don't want to spoil season one of Homeland. Guys, but.
2: <laughs> but then, but then we did hear Bo's father and Toby. You mentioned Bo's father in the very first episode of this podcast as being a very interesting character. Of course, Sarah says that Bo's parents are not talking to her for the podcast, but of course they've been gracious. And we hear about Bo's father's approach and and what he did. And that he had his own calculus about what extent we should go to to get Bo back. And what did you think when you heard him say that and when you heard that whole idea of that calculus and that a father could even take that stand?
1: He's an interesting guy, right? And I think he, he probably, without knowing a ton about him, it seems as though he has some pretty strong beliefs about things. That's about as ineloquent a thing as I've ever said. But
2: Well, I have a I have a follow-up question for okay. you. I'm a big fan of pointing to things that Sarah Koenig does in these episodes and saying that was a clue about this other thing that we're going to hear about later. As you know, I'm all about the anvil dropping out of the sky. I think I heard one in this episode, and I want to know if you heard it too. And Laura, I'll come to you next with this. She talked about all the things that were going on in Pakistan in 2009, 2010. She talked about, in 2011, she talked about, you know, our mission to get Osama bin Laden. She talked about uh, that guy who shot at those two people on the motorcycle, that contractor. And she talked about Bo Bergdahl being a small, simmering fire in the background as these larger fires were burning. That that Bo Bergdahl was just a small, smoldering fire sort of in the background, and that... The time to deal with him would be when he could be used to put out a larger fire. Toby, you've talked about the Guantanamo Bay prisoners. What did it mean that we got him when we did? Do you think that's what she was pointing to here when she said that, when she, when she remarked that he was the small fire that could be put into use later to put out a large fire?
1: You know, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that at all. Yeah, I guess it's, I guess it's possible. It's like why at that point rather than some other point, yeah, maybe there is something, something to that. What
3: do you think, Laura? Yeah, I mean, I think what I'm waiting for is that that wasn't the clue I was looking for. The clue I heard was, um, you know, the tease for next week of we're finally going to hear what he saw that made him walk off. That's what I'm, I'm thinking is going to blow this thing up.
2: Kevin, I know that you loved the teaser for next week's episode. What did you hear in that coming up next week on Serial?
0: Well, I thought, I w- you know, up until this point, I was like waiting for a time to bring this up. I thought the dust one was this season's MacGuffin.
2: Can you please describe what a MacGuffin
0: yeah, is? Yeah, now for a listener who doesn't know, this is like... Because uh, you're
2: 100 years old, you're the only one who knows what that means. This
0: is a term that all the writers on the podcast, except for you, Rebecca, <laughs> seem to know. A MacGuffin is, Alfred Hitchcock coined the term, it's it's an object or a thing that that puts the plot in motion, but is otherwise unimportant to the story. Hitchcock would do it and say, "Like we're on a train, and I have to get these plans back to headquarters." And then what the plans were, the secret plans w- were oh, irrelevant. Oh,
2: Casablanca is all about the MacGuffin.
0: Maltese Falcon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the best one is probably in like Pulp Fiction. You know, the, the briefcase that we don't ever know what's inside it but they have to get the briefcase so the MacGuffin is just the thing to get stuff going and I'm like the dust one is the MacGuffin it's just the thing that gets the plot going because in the end we don't care what happens to the officers and whether or not a private was right about whether there was problems with the uh, uh, with discipline or whatever because she really didn't cover that in episode one and just shut off so I'm like that's the MacGuffin we don't really care about that and I find out no there was something, perhaps, with the dust one because we're going to come back to that. So I was blown away.
3: Can I say one more thing about about the dust one and the walking off? One of the things that people keep bringing up in in this episode, we heard it several times, where they're calling Bo a traitor. He's a traitor. Well, there's a difference between a traitor and a deserter. And at this point, all they know he's he, he's a deserter. They don't know that he's like collaborating with the enemy and that he's going against his own country. Yeah,
0: what? some people use that interchangeably. Um, When there's a real distinction – I mean there's a real distinction there. And I don't think that there's been any evidence presented either on the podcast or in real life that that shows that he was a traitor and gave comfort to the enemy.
3: Yeah, but I think that what it sounded like this week was that some of the people that she was talking to down in Tampa – the higher
2: up people had the impression that he was a traitor. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that was the chatter in the hallway. Is that oh well, he's the traitor, he's a deserter. Toby, what were you gonna say?
1: Well I just think the reason I think you'd make that inference is that usually when you desert, you're deserting to some place where you're gonna have some comfort or, or or you're you're going someplace for a while that you would rather be than in the military and and there, the only place he was going was to the, the Taliban. Well, you know, I, you I, I
0: actually was thinking about, like, what were the early news reports on this? likes? I went back and found some clippings from 2009, like when which was like, OK, the Pentagon has identified the soldier as Bo Bergdahl. I was like, well, what were they saying at that moment about the circumstances of his disappearance? And w- one of the reports was there are reports that he left in the company of other Afghans. You know, and this is you know. I remember, there was some like, oh, he was he was comfortable, or he chatty with um, you know the Afghan security forces, and I, I, I know that that probably you know, and the idea, of course, that you know he was on the video lagging behind. Everybody knew that was a bullshit line. I mean, I think it it fed a narrative for some people. Confirmation bias
2: but can I ask you another question then and um, that's
0: why I'm on the podcast babe I mean you can ask me anything you want
2: if and this is a big if obviously we heard a lot of voices in this podcast telling different versions of the we're doing everything we can narrative we heard from Nathan saying that people were telling that to Bergdahl's parents and they absolutely were not doing everything they could we heard from Michelle and Andrea we're absolutely not doing everything we could but we're saying we're doing everything we can we heard about the problems with Pakistan we heard the ambassador who was in Pakistan saying, you know, if you say you're going to do everything you can, you better at least bring it up in meetings. Do everything and that you can't. Ask the yeah. question, at least can we do something about Bergdahl? I don't know. I think it's pretty clear that with a lack of organization or with all the other problems going on, that doing everything we can isn't really what was going on. That's just the messaging you give to the families if you're the U.S. government and you're mishandling the situation. Doesn't it help support the doing everything you can narrative when you know you're not doing everything you can? If the information you put out there intimates that this might be this guy's fault in some way?
0: Yeah, you know, it it could certainly work to one's advantage if they don't want to put a lot of effort into this. They can sort of get buy-in from other people that we don't really need to work very hard on this one because we don't want them back for X, Y, or Z reason.
2: Or that could just sort of be the way to sort of assuage the public. Yeah, we haven't been able to get and we're doing everything we can. But also he walked off the base in the company of other The reports say in the company of other Afghans. I don't know. There's something about that. That part really really didn't blow up
0: until he came back. And then they weighed that against the, the, the five Taliban. I guess.
2: I have
3: another theory. Go ahead, Laura. Well, you were kind of hinting this before, Rebecca. I mean, maybe they were kind of holding him in reserve until they needed him for the larger purpose. And so they really weren't trying that hard.
2: I really think that that is where we're going. And I, I it's funny because I didn't pick up on that until I actually listened to the episode twice today. Full disclosure, we're taping this podcast on the same day Serial was released, which we've never done before. Who gives um, a shit? Well, only because... I actually do think that that makes a difference because I typically need some time to sort of process, gather my thoughts, but I could not wait to talk about this episode today after I listened to it the first time and have some scheduling stuff and all that. So I quickly had to listen to it twice and that thread, this idea of we needed him for something really popped out the second time I've listened. And if you're listening to this podcast, if you've only listened to this episode once, I actually would suggest you go back and listen again because the -the in-between-the-lines narration that Sarah Koenig puts in, I think, are hinting a little bit more to where we're going than we've heard before. Toby, did you get the sense of this episode that you have a better idea of where we're going? Because I know that's been your big dissatisfaction so far this season.
1: I guess a little bit, although I don't want you to follow up with the question of where do I think it is going. <laughs> but it does. I guess I have more confidence that it's headed somewhere more interesting than I was worried about.
0: I'm with Toby. I mean, I feel like we're going somewhere now, and I don't. Want, I don't need to guess what exactly then it's going to happen in the next chapter. I have an idea of what the story is going to be about. I don't want to guess what the story is anymore. I just want to go through this. And, I, you know, I'm right. I've given myself up. Let's do it.
2: And it's because this episode was fun, right?
0: It very much redeemed the earlier stuff. I keep saying, like, if this were a, a book, and, right, serial in itself is an experiment in storytelling, and we like to say if this were a book, chapter one, whatever, I would have said, you know, this episode 5 let's call it chapter 5 should probably go before chapter 4
2: I bet money it was supposed to remember how the previews for chapter episode 3 didn't match up with what episode 4 ended up being
0: yeah because I, I think it ended up being a pace where now again like the whole first quarter of the series ends up being Bo Bergdahl's horrible situation. And, you know, I think this one, the the shift in tone and stuff, and then this would be, you know, meanwhile back in Pakistan, it could have been five because it, these are two parallel timelines. And instead of like, okay, we're going to have a shit sandwich on top of another shit sandwich. It's
2: not the way you would tell a story. It's not the way, you, yeah. It's not the way you would do a movie. It's not the way you would write a novel. And I actually feel. Very strongly that this episode or elements, parts of this episode were supposed to go before what we heard last time and that they reordered the storytelling. That narrative was probably finished. So they went ahead and played that while they were sort of rejiggering all their plans. And then they cut in a bunch of new material and now they're redoing the episodes. I think Laura was right. I
0: think this refutes the canners. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Toby, can, I don't know. The, the canners
0: are those people She's, think it's all in the can.
2: <laughs>
3: She's splicing the can. I, I don't know. I, I'm just waiting. I want to know how many more hostages are out there being held by the Haqqani. I'm, I'm really wondering about that after this episode.
2: Is it because of what you read in Duncan Hunter's memo? Yeah. Well, just in and, and the reports, there's actually been a lot
3: of media reports about these other hostages out there and they're not getting home. This,
2: this poor woman who gave birth in captivity. I mean, that's awful. Toby, I have a morality question for you. Okay. What about civilians? You know, what if I decided to take a trip to hike in Afghanistan, which, if you know me, is, you know. <laughs> there are
0: three f- hysterical things about that yeah, statement. Just, but it
2: would never happen for a variety of reasons. But does the U.S. have a responsibility to get me back? Is that the government's responsibility?
1: Well, I think it's different in that with, with soldiers, you're constantly asking them to do very dangerous things. And I think one of the ways that you make doing those things possible is that they know that if bad things happen, everybody else is not gonna cut and run and they're just gonna be left abandoned, right? So so we're asking them to do dangerous things and, and that's sort of the the deal that's made there. With civilians, to a certain extent, you're doing it on your own impetus. Yeah, I, I think we should my my sense is We should be doing everything we possibly can to get them back. I think it's the government's calculus has to be what are we willing to concede? What kind of damage are we willing to accept in order to get somebody like that back? You mean just a regular civilian,
2: right? Not a journalist, not a soldier.
1: Right, because I think in in those cases, there's no expectation that they need to do that to to a certain extent, and and again, I think that we should be trying to get them back. And I, I think this a, a somewhat different thing happened in New Hampshire a while ago, where once cell phones came out, people would go hiking in the White Mountains. That's right. In the winter, and they get themselves into trouble, and they make a call, and then people would come and rescue them. And after a while, it was like, well, you know, you're going to have to start paying for this stuff because you're just making these terrible decisions because you know that somebody's going to come and bail you out
0: it's you know it's the same thing the circumstances of capture are irrelevant whether you're in the military or you're a civilian to the u.s our job is to you're a citizen we're going to get you back that's why we have an embassy there that's why we have a diplomatic corps you belong to us you should not be held against your will and then, right, if you want to get hit with a fine or get court-martialed afterwards, then we need to do that. So as much as I would really like a 6 months vacation with you in a North Korean <laughs> jail cell, Rebecca, you have every expectation that your government will get you back. We're forgetting something. In the news this week, a bunch of American hostages came home from Iran. And that was dealt in, in a way – now, really, once this – all of Serial plays out, would really like to compare and contrast how that went down.
2: But we had a big well, fire to put out. Those people were valuable because Iran wants to be compliant with their nuclear weapons agreement.
0: Right. And while they are who the Iranians got back are not terrorists, they're not having violent crimes, they're still significant people. I think it has to do with commerce and different... Stuff like that I was looking, I can't remember. There him, were but,
2: sanctions violated.
3: Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. But again, it's, you know, we're swapping pawns here.
3: Right. I think one of the hostages, not one of the Iranian ones, but one of the hostages that was released was one of the ones Jason Armory was working on trying to get released at the same time that he was working on the Bergdahl case.
2: It was uh, calling somebody. So we are seeing this now being pushed to the forefront. And I think that Bergdahl was just the first one we saw where there was like this very showy exchange, which I remember at the time was like shocking to a lot of people that we would do this. But I I do think this is part of that reform that we heard about. And we are all in New Hampshire. We're all very familiar with the James Foley story and how his parents, who basically were willing to put up the ransom money to get him back, this journalist, James Foley, who was then beheaded in a video. Horrible, horrible story. But the thing that kind of came out of that was the way those people were treated by the U.S. government, being told over and over again, we're doing everything we can. You're not allowed to act on his behalf. You're not allowed to look for him. You're not allowed to put up Branson for him. You're not allowed to engage in any way with people that have him. And their feelings were just quashed. And I think there has really been a sea change in the wake of the James Foley incident that was not in place during Bo Bergdahl's well,
0: captivity, it, it, I don't think there's any diplomatic channels with ISIS where there appears to be the framework of diplomatic talks, backdoor talks with the Taliban, right? You know, and I, I know this. Call I yes, Erica called them, but they have an office in Kabul, the political office of the Taliban. One of the articles I read was and they were asked. This is like a year before Bergdahl's release, they were asking for those five guys, those five Taliban for whatever. They they wanted them to be a bargaining chip in peace talks. Mm-hmm. So they have always had their eyes on those five guys.
2: Well, maybe those five guys were the bigger fire. We'll find play. out. We'll find out. We will find out. Okay. So before we move on to our next segment, i like us to each just give this episode a grade. I think that we all agree it was a really good episode. Very compelling. Toby, how would you grade season two, episode five, Meanwhile in Tampa? Letter grade scale, please. What grade do you give it and why?
1: I guess I give it an A And I guess the minus is really for, the, I, and I don't think it's really Sarah's fault, but th- there was like really interesting pieces of information that we just did not get. How did, the, when we get the number to the, her number to the Taliban, what was Nathan's connection that made him particularly outraged about the way the government was treating the Berg dolls and so on. But it was the best one of this season so far, I think.
2: Laura, what grade do you give this episode and Why?
3: Um, I'm going for A, just because I listened to this back to back, one right after the other. I, like I said, left feeling outraged and upset, and you know everybody knows I love a good
2: cause, and so I'm all fired up now. What about you, Kevin? How do you grade this episode?
0: I'm giving it an A plus. I thought that it really redeemed the the whole series. It was a return to form for Sarah, and uh, definitely told us stuff that we didn't know. And in a way that was more interesting, in a way, than to hear about four years of torture, we, we didn't know those details. But this was really, this was really interesting. And like you said, it's not a linear story, and it goes, it's going to zip around a little bit. And so, again, I think that it was a great piece of storytelling.
2: I'm with you. Uh, I also give it an A plus. A. I thought it was compelling. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was something the other episodes haven't been. Entertaining, and I don't mean it in a way to say that there's anything about the story we should be, you know, entertained by. I don't want to get, you know, insulted about that online. But this episode sucked me in from minute one, pulled me to the end, and at the end of it, I finally feel for the first time this season that I cannot wait to hear what is happening in the next episode. One other thing last week I made a joke, you know, maybe Sarah Kane has got Obama. I'm not saying that I think she's got an interview with Obama, but Obama (laughs) was actually mentioned in the Nathan portion when they said, you know, sort of like, this needs to get to the president. I thought. Oh, yeah, the president. You never know. So I have that hope still. You could be right, Rebecca, because he did do the thing with Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> That's true. That's true. The comedians in cars getting coffee, which was very funny. I don't if know. If we
0: went on a Mark Marin's podcast, <laughs> then he <you> probably <laughs> maybe, could have gotten Sarah. Maybe we
2: could get Obama on this podcast. Who knows? Okay, so now I'd like to move on to the my favorite segment of the show a little something I like to call the crime of the week. <laughs> According to a strongly worded ruling by a judge in the UK, Russian President Vladimir Putin very likely approved a plan by Russia's FSB security service to kill a former Russian agent turned Kremlin critic who died after drinking tea laced with the radioactive poison polonium. Judge Robert Owen, he's the one who led the inquiry into the 2006 killing of Alexander Litvinenko, who I remember at the time said he was certain that he had been poisoned by Putin and the two Russian men had given him tea containing that fatal dose of polonium during a meeting at a hotel. So here's my question. The judge says Putin probably ordered this assassination. It's very James Bond-esque in its details. Toby, I know that you wrote a series of novels about a shadowy government conspiring against some of its citizenry. So my question for you is this. I'll start with you. If you were going to order your minions to assassinate someone, (laughs) would you choose a stranger than fiction method like poisoning them in tea with polonium? Or would you just tell them, you know, something mundane like cut his brake lines or something like that?
1: I, I guess I would go for the uh, for the headliner. You know, I think cutting cutting brake cables and stuff. I, you know, that's Putin. He needs the headlines when he does that. And what was crazy, and I don't know if they he got into this in the article, is they apparently gave him so much of that radioactive stuff that it was just like they could find it everywhere, and like people who like encountered him were got sick from radiation poisoning. They gave, like, 200 times the amount they needed to.
2: It was pretty James Bond-esque, and it was, then they had that polonium trail that they followed, which is how they ended up finding out how he had been poisoned. And we saw it today, Kevin. One of the guys who poisoned him uh, is now, like, on the... It's
0: a Russian lawmaker. So, Laura... You'll make deal with me.
2: <laughs> so, Laura, <laughs> how would you command your minions to assassinate a spy who had turned against you? Would it be something dramatic and James Bond-esque, or would it be something mundane?
3: Oh, totally dramatic. Um, a, a good drug, I think it's been called the perfect murder weapon, is uh, succinocochline. It's um, like an anesthesia drug, and you are basically like paralyzed completely, but you're awake. And what makes it the perfect murder weapon is it metabolizes out of your body after you die. So there's no trace.
0: Was that in your book?
3: No, it was not. But there is a, a case I have followed where they have not been able to make an arrest because that was the theory as to what happened. But obviously, there's no toxicology to back that up. What was the name of that drug again? I, no, don't tell her that. How do you, how do you, <laughs> don't.
0: That is not covered is by known her health plan. As the
3: perfect murder weapon. But I just have to say, on a side note, a little lighter note. Has anybody seen the Putin calendar?
0: Oh god, no.
2: He's shirtless. No, but I have seen the Jason Ann Marine action figure. <laughs> no, it, it's really
3: frightening. He does a calendar every year. It just came out, and, and it's online. You can go look it up, and there's quite some, some interesting photos on there. you we'll get it to... on Amazon? <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, because somebody... <laughs> I'm not sure.
0: You probably get a good deal with it now that it's halfway through January, 2016 calendar.
2: <laughs> All right, Kevin, your assassination weapon of choice, go.
0: Uh, I would not give someone a tea-filled... With polonium-210, I would just send them to Flint, Michigan.
2: Oh. <laughs> and why is that?
0: Well, the, just because the water there is, the tea would be, I, th- I don't know which would be more yeah, deadly. Yeah, no,
2: no, no. I was just kidding. We get the joke. You get the joke? It's real bad. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> no, of course, I would have an overly complicated way of killing off the hero that would be easy to escape from.
2: And I suppose we can talk maybe next week or in a couple weeks about my theory about the Avery family for making a murderer all suffering from lead poisoning. I love the conspiracies. I love it. Anyway, I guess we should end on that note. Before I let you go, Toby, how can our listeners find you, if they would like to, on Twitter?
1: I don't know why they'd want to try that, <laughs> but it's uh, at TobyBallNH.
2: Toby Ball, thank you so much for joining me, as always. Thank you. And Laura, I know that you're on the Twitter as well, correct?
3: I am. At Lara Bricker. It's
2: L-A-R-A-B-R-I-C-K-E-R. Thank you so much for joining us. We've enjoyed the very soothing sounds of your space heater this evening. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> i got to stay warm up here. You know, it's cold. And Kevin, how people find you on Twitter?
0: I'm at, at Kevin P. Flynn.
2: Kevin, thank you so much for coming in to join me tonight.
0: Well, you're my ride in.
2: <laughs> and if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at RebLavoy. Our little show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions you want us to answer, send us a tweet. And if you love this show, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps keep us on the charts so other people can find us and also tune in. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. You can find out more about all the crime writers at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, do some shopping with that Amazon link. You could even bookmark it if you want. And who knows, maybe Toby will read your items on our next episode. You can also check out our Buy Our Books page or make a donation via Square or PayPal to support the show. On behalf of all the crime writers, thank you so much for listening. We will catch you
1: later. I literally listened to this podcast like in a car with four other people driving back from Boston this afternoon. And I was like listening to it like it was a phone call. (laughs) Headphones. Shut up! Shut up! You shut up! Yeah.
2: It was good though, right?
0: Yeah, it was good. It was was interesting. Did you tell him it was a phone call? (laughs) No, they all and, knew exactly and what and was occasionally go like, mm-hmm yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> oh there's more of that.
2: So so were your work people like shh, Toby's making his podcast
1: right now. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing his homework. Uh now...